So you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. <clears throat> and we're going to be in uh, verses 12 uh, to about 25 this morning. And I don't have an outline for you um, today, so you'll just have to listen along. Um, bulletins, we didn't get those done this week. Lindsay went quite sick this week, so... Um, uh, things were just a little different, but if you read through the first at least seven to eight chapters of Samuel, you start to get the impression that we are reading a really good storyteller, somebody who is weaving just a masterful story together. It's a literary delight. The, the author is using space and timing and, and keyword connections and literary interruptions, and he's drawing us into the drama of the life of Israel up to the establishment of the kings, especially King David. And now, we have these books like First and Second Samuel, but like Samuel, actually, his story, part in the story ends about chapter 25 of First Samuel, and then there's a whole other book after him. So he actually plays a very small part in the whole thing thing, the whole story that bears his name. This is really about the establishment of the kings of Israel, especially Saul and David. And uh, next month, in, in the month of June, we'll be looking at the kingship of Saul, and then in July, the kingship of David, and then August, the kingship of Solomon. And so that's, there's your preview, there's your summer schedule for you. We've got these three first kings of what we would call the United Kingdom of Israel. And just this first couple chapters of Samuel are just beautifully written. And the author is deliberately making a contrast between Hannah, Elkanah, and Samuel, and Eli, and Hophni, and Phinehas. There is these people of great faith, and then there are people that stand as a warning to us. Now, a lot of times we come to the Bible to read and to learn how to live life, but in this case and in this story, this is the don't do it this way. <laughs> okay, so last week we had Hannah, Elkanah, and Samuel, and it was kind of like, Approach the pain in your life this way. May, may it force you to prayer and from prayer to hope and from hope to praise. And today we'll look at the brothers, Hophni and Phinehas, for the contrast. Now, contrast is a state of being strikingly different from something else or in juxtaposition or close association. The action of calling attention to notable differences a thing or a person having qualities noticeably different from another. And the author is weaving the story of Samuel in and out of the story of Eli and his sons, the, the high priest and, the, and the, this special family that was to serve God and serve Israel at the tabernacle. We see Samuel growing in the presence of the Lord and the word of God coming to him. And at the same time, we see the depravity of Hophni and Phinehas. And it goes back and forth between the two. We read of an increasingly blind Eli. He's getting blinder as the story goes until his death. 
We read that the word of the Lord was rare and that visions were infrequent, and this kind of goes together with his literal blindness. We read of an unnamed man of God who speaks the word of God to Eli, and then God's word comes to Samuel. We read of two sons who are surrendered to their own desires and passion, and one who is surrendered completely to the Lord. It's a study in contrasts. First Samuel chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 11 to 26. Let's stand together as we hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, and while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me Give meat for the priest to roast. He will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, or if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up from, with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing that all, all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the, from the people of the Lord spread abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Have a seat. So you can hear the back and forth, the contrast between Eli's sons and Hophni and Phinehas. And this is, uh, he continued to grow in, uh, in favor with the Lord. He was in the presence of the Lord, serving the presence of the Lord. But Hophni and Phinehas don't know the Lord. And yet here they are, priests serving in the tabernacle. We first meet Hophni and Phinehas back in chapter 1 and verse 3, where they're just identified as the priests of the Lord, the priests of Yahweh, covenant God of Israel. 
They serve in the tabernacle. They offer sacrifices. They're custodians of the presence of God with his people and his word. But they were simply going through the religious motions without any real relationship with God. And this is a first lesson we can take away from this passage. Proximity to God's presence or participation in religious tradition is no guarantee of transformation of the heart and a life of love and service to the Lord. You can come to church every day and be lost. You can read this book over and over again and never know Jesus. Because it's all head knowledge and religious tradition, and that's what's happening with Hophni and Phineas. They've grown up, they're priests. They went to Bible college, they went to seminary. They're, they're serving as pastors, but they have no relationship with God. It's just routine for them. We can bring our kids to church, and they can have all the right answers, sing the right songs, quote the right verses, check all the boxes, and not know God at all. Because it's not about information. It's about deep heart transformation, surrendering our lives to him. And walking in love for God and one another. This is a hard one. This is a hard one for me. It's a hard one for a lot of us, isn't it? Because we, we, we served in the church. We, we gave our time. We gave our effort. We gave our energy. And our kids might not be following Jesus at all. And maybe we went into it thinking that if we just do enough stuff, God will just bless our family. But we didn't lead at home. We led at church. We did all the stuff. Proximity to God's presence and participation in religious tradition is no guarantee of transformation of the heart and of a life of love and service to the Lord. Look at that first verse, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Wow. Pretty harsh, isn't it? Go back to uh, chapter 1. Here's the contrast. Verse 16 in chapter 1. Hannah is being accused of being drunk in the presence of the Lord. And Eli is challenging her. And she says, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For I have, all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. I have been praying and pouring out my soul before the Lord. That's a contrast to Hannah. They were worthless men. Second part of the verse, they did not know Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Again, this is a contrast to chapter 1 where Hannah and Elkanah, they're addressing Yahweh over and over. She is the first person who uses this title, Lord of hosts, that we find scattered throughout the prophets, God of angel armies, God of the, of, of the armies of heaven. 
And the word for the covenant God of Israel is always on her lips and her husband's lips, but it is not found in Eli or his sons. They did not know the Lord, even though they're serving at the tabernacle. See, Hophni and Phinehas aren't surrendered to God. They are surrendered and therefore slaves to their passions and appetites. They want the best food and sexual pleasure without commitment. That's what they're doing. They ignore God's parameters for both. Food and sex. Now for the priesthood, there was ample food provided for them in the various sacrifices. If we just go back, go, go to Numbers chapter 18. It's a very long passage, but I'm just going to read a few little highlights here and see if this doesn't sound like a good deal. The Lord spoke to Aaron, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me, all the consecrated things of the people of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual due. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, every grain offering of theirs, and every sin offering of theirs, and every guilt offering of theirs, which they render to me shall be most holy to you and your sons. In a most holy place you shall eat it. Every male may eat it. It is holy to you. This also is yours, the contributions of their gifts, all the wave offerings of the people of Israel. I've given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. All the best oil, all the best of the wine and of the grain and of the first fruits which they give to the Lord, I give to you. The first ripe fruits and all that is in their land, which, belong, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Wow. Great deal. That's a good deal, isn't it? Like the best meat, the best wine, the best oil, the best of the grain offerings, the first fruits. Man, like, good time to be a pastor. You, you, you'll read later on, if you, if you read through, that, that when Eli dies, he just falls over and breaks his neck because he's so large. You wonder how he got that way. Meat wasn't a huge thing on the diets back in the Middle East in this time, but they're getting a lot of it from the sacrificial system. The average person isn't eating a lot of meat. They get it. They get it. They had it good. Sounds like a pretty sweet deal. And it goes on and on. The point is they were well provided for within the confines that God had established. But what they're doing, when you read about this, you know, they sent these, these servants around with a fork and they would poke it in the pot and they'd say, hey, give me that before you burn the fat off the sacrifice. They were cutting in line. Before it was offered to God, they said, I want that, 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 and that. Before it was offered to God, the, the, the rule was after it was offered, then you get the leftovers. So they were taking some of the best stuff. They wanted the best food for themselves. They didn't want to see that burned up on the altar as a sacrifice to God. No, that's the good stuff. 
But, but you know, go back to numbers and see how much they, would, they got out of the deal anyway. And you go, wow, like these guys are just crazy. Why are they looking for this? Because they want more than what God provides for them. They, they think God's holding out on them. And the end of that chapter says in, in verses 30 to 32 of Numbers 18, Therefore you shall say to them, when you have offered from the best of it, so the priests had to give an offering out of what they got too. When you have offered from the best of it, the rest shall be counted to the Levites as produce of the fresh threshing floor and as produce of the winepress, and you may eat it in any place, you and, your ho- you and your households, for it is your reward in return for your service in the tent of meeting, and you shall bear no sin by reason of it when you have contributed the best of it, but you shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel lest you die. And Hophni and Phinehas were doing just that. See, like Adam and Eve in the garden, who had no need of anything, and God had provided abundantly for them, they wanted more. They wanted what God said no to. And isn't that always our tension and our temptation? It's what God says no to that we want more than anything else. Watch this with your kids, right? Don't touch that. What's going to touch it. As soon as you put up a boundary, they push against it, right? Every time. That's the sinful nature. But like Adam and Eve, Hophni and Phinehas were not satisfied with what God provided. They wanted more. They didn't want to sacrifice the best. They wanted it for themselves. So they took the food by force and coercion. If a man says to them, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. They were abusing their position of authority and power for their own gain to satisfy their own appetites, and they used threat of force and manipulation to get what they wanted. Peter, in speaking to leaders in the early church, said these words, 1 Peter 5, 2, and 3, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameless or shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. But Hophni and Phineas were doing it because they had to. Shameful gain and dominating others. This is not what leadership looks like. And this is a standing requirement for ministry leaders, not just those of us who do it vocationally. It applies to every volunteer as well. Don't lead because you have to, but because you want to. Don't lead because of what you get out of it, but serve others passionately. And don't use your leadership position to dominate others, but serve them in love. And so that's the second thing we can take out of this. First, proximity doesn't mean a changed heart. Second, a position of leadership is a position of service, not a position of dominance 
to get what you want. And if we jump over the page and see the rest of the story and what, they, what Hophni and Phinehas are doing, we see that they breach more boundaries that God had set up. <clears throat> Hophni and Phinehas also used their position of leader and influence to indulge their sexual appetites outside of God's purposes, and they were turning the tabernacle into a brothel. Eli was very old, verse 22, and he kept hearing that his, what his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. More accurately, it's not just that they were turning it into a brothel. It was for their own thing, for their own appetites. They were treating the tabernacle as a pagan shrine. <clears throat> you see... As um, reveals a level of the level of syncretism that was happening that we could read about in Judges all the way through how how the people of Israel were were more and more accepting the Canaanite religion and in Canaanite religion and most ancient Near Eastern religions they viewed sex as a, at the temple shrine with temple servants servants as intimate participation with that god something God clearly forbids. Their appetite for food and for more and their appetite for sex out of the bonds of marriage. Something God clearly forbids. Now today we don't have a temple shrine prostitute problem. We just have rampant internet pornography. Sex trafficking. And in at least a 10-year-old statistic, 50% of men in evangelical churches and 15 to 20% of women admitting to viewing pornography on a regular basis. Our culture has ignored God's boundaries for sexual fulfillment, and we are paying a high price. 58% of divorces cite as a contributing factor internet pornography addiction. It's killing relationships everywhere. I did one sermon on this once when I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and that went for an hour and 10 minutes, so this will be short, or won't get into it as much, because it's a huge topic and it needs to be addressed in the church. But just a few statistics, and again, these are from about 2016. Global, <coughs> global revenue from internet pornography, 97 billion annually. $3,000 per second. From one internet provider of pornography in the year 2016, 92 billion videos were streamed. Do the math. How many people are on the planet? 7.5 billion. If you do the math, that works out to one video per month per person on the planet. Four point six billion hours in twenty sixteen alone. You know how many years that is? 
524,624 years watched in one year. 80% of all the people that appear in those videos have been trafficked, drugged, beaten, threatened, raped. It's sex slavery. And every time a person views it, they support that. 25% of all internet searches are pornography related. And like I said, an average of 50% of men in churches admit that it's a problem. How many don't? We could get into that a whole lot more, as I said, the one time I preached on this, we delved into that for over an hour. But how does God respond to this violation of his holiness and the holy task the priesthood was to fulfill? Hophni and Phinehas rejected Eli's challenge and correction. They don't listen. Note carefully how important Eli makes this charge when he hears about their sexual misconduct. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? This isn't just a sin against people. Sexual sin is against God himself, period, full stop. Listen to how Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by, everything, by anything. Food is for, meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Interesting, he talks about both the food and sexuality in this, in this passage, just as we get in 1 Samuel here. And God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And just in case you think that maybe he's only addressing just the physical reality of having an affair, Matthew 5 puts that to rest. You've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he makes it very serious, cut it off. Eli says it clearly. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him, but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? 
None of it is innocent. Sexual sin is a sin against God and a refusal to accept God's word and God's purposes and God's parameters around our sexuality leads us on a destructive path that ends in death. It's that serious and it's that important. And take this as a warning to consistently ignoring God's word in their defilement of the sacrifices and their sexual indulgences. They hardened their hearts and they numbed their consciences and they would not listen. See, there comes a point when God surrenders us to our own passions and sins and lets us reap what we sow. Romans 1.24 says, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. If you consistently act counter to God's word and will, he will let you have what you want. Hophni and Phineas indulged their natural and God-given desires through illegitimate means. Our need for food and our hunger for food and the enjoyment of food is something God gave us. He created that in the garden. Said, eat anything you want in this garden except this one tree and enjoy the garden I've given you. And, and now there's this relationship of husband and wife and enjoy it. Find fulfillment in it. Rejoice in it. God set parameters around the tree in the garden and around her sexuality at the same time. But Hophni and Phinehas, like many people today, and like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, do not believe God's word or his provision. Their greater sin is that they do not, they believe that God is not good that his limitations are restrictive or unrealistic. They do not believe that God's ways are best. And so they violate God's glory, desecrate God's temple, and abuse God's people to satisfy their own cravings and desires. And God is committed to protecting his glory and reputation. He will not tolerate the desecration of his holy presence or the abuse of his people. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Because eventually God just says, you want it that way? Fine. Live with the consequences. They would not listen. They would not repent. So they would experience the wages of sin. When we're confronted with our sin and the ways in which we hurt God and others, we have a choice. We can admit our sin, confess our wrongs, and repent, turning around and not continuing in those behaviors or attitudes, or we can make excuses, deny the reality of our sin, and reap the consequences. We can either confess our sins to one another and be healed, or we can continue to live in sickness and depravity and reap the consequences of our actions <clears throat> in broken relationships and increased dysfunctional living that ruins our souls and our families. But know this, if your passions are ruling your decisions and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you must deal with this. 
if you want to live a God-honoring life and lead your families to follow Jesus, then this issue must be addressed. Whatever the passion is, it might not be what we've talked about this morning, but there may be other passions and desires that are destroying your life. Kill it before it kills you. Colossians 3.5, Paul puts it bluntly, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, before I came to candidate here, I met with Rob Thiessen and Dennis Federer at the BCMB office. First question Rob Thiessen asked me, if I were to grab your phone right now or your computer and look through your internet history, would I find anything that would disqualify you from ministry? Because so many pastors and church leaders have fallen in this regard. So many ministries have been damaged. So many churches have been ripped apart. This is a non-starter. You know, if a pornography issue comes to light for anyone in ministry, it's an automatic dismissal. Now for me, this is a past issue. It's victory is possible. Jesus' instructions in Matthew 5, like Paul's in Colossians 3 to 5, in relation to lust, to deal with it ruthlessly, you just can't let it continue. It will destroy you your family, and your ministry. And the journey's hard. I know, been there, done that. But there can be victory. If you submit yourself to be accountable and have reports sent to someone, now accountability isn't reporting on what you have done. Accountability is phoning someone up and saying, I'm struggling with this right now and I might go down this road, help me cut off what I'm about to do. Take responsibility for your actions and your choices and walk in repentance. Acknowledging that indulging your desires outside of God's purposes and parameters is a sin, a violation of his glory and abuse of his body, your body, which he bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, which he makes alive by his spirit that is in you, that he has sealed you with for the day of redemption. And memorize and live in passages like 1 John 1, 8 to 2, 2. Isaiah 53, 5 to 6, Romans 8, 1. Let's read each of those. First John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. 
Now let's keep going. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Or other translations say, whoever says he abides in him must live as Jesus lived. Holy surrendered to God. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then Romans 8.1, For there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hophni and Phineas are a warning to us. Proximity to God's presence in religious tradition will not change your heart. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we can't do that if we're completely self-absorbed and looking out for ourselves and our own to satisfy our own pleasures and desires. Our natural desires for good food and for sex are God's gift. But God has provided for our natural appetites in very specific and in very good ways. We need to embrace God's definition of what is best for us and how our needs are to be met. Our bodies are created by God, made alive by God, and dwelt with his spirit. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we see this story of Hophni and Phinehas, and we see men who were surrounded by religious stuff but didn't know you at all. They indulged their appetites, their desires, their passions in ways that violated your holiness, abused your people, and desecrated your presence. Lord, as David prayed as well, would you search us and know us? Turn your light on us so that any wickedness and the sin that we may be justifying, we would see it for what it is and come to you in repentance. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief leads to repentance with no regrets, but worldly sorrow leads to death. If God is convicting your heart today, come to him. There's no time frame. God says, come to me today. Come to me right now. When you confess your sin, when you own it, when you admit and you agree with God that 
The way you're thinking and the way you're acting is out of line with his purposes. There's forgiveness and there's freedom. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin left the crimson stain, but you, Lord Jesus, you washed us white as snow. So, Father, help us to walk in that and live in that, not trusting in our religious routine, not trusting in proximity to the church or involvements, but drawing near to you. James says, draw near to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to the Lord. Lord, you've given us so much in this beautiful world that you've created. To meet all our needs, to satisfy the desires you placed in our hearts. Lord, we, we love to eat and we, we love to love our spouses. And those are the those are good things. Those are holy things. One of the only things that's called holy outside of God himself is the marriage bed. Keep it holy. Keep it set apart. No one else. Lord, and we find greater freedom there. Greater fulfillment when we walk in your ways, when we walk within the parameters that you've created for us, we find greater freedom than this world offers us. Greater fulfillment and a deeper joy. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way for us to come back to you through Jesus Christ and we can find healing and wholeness and restoration for our hearts for our relationships. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning because we need your correction. We need to respond as Hophni and Phinehas did not. Listen to the word of the Lord. Turn your heart to him. Surrender to his love and his care. In Jesus' name, amen.